Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, This morning, we come to the end of our series on the Apostles of Christ. Uh, In our study on Mark's Gospel, we've we've paused in chapter 3 to take the time to learn about the nature of apostleship um, and to understand more about the 12 men who were initially chosen by Christ to be his authoritative delegates. And that brings us to the final of those 12. Our focus today is on Judas Iscariot. Now, it's interesting that many people try and paint Judas in a different light than what the Scriptures do, but to do so betrays their own lack of submission to the authority of the Bible. I mean, how often do we see that in such a variety of areas concerning biblical truth? People say, I don't like that, or I don't think that's the way it should be, or I disagree with what's right here in the Bible. That doesn't fit with our progressive views or enlightened views or our current cultural climate. People aren't going to like me if I say that. So what do they do? They ignore the plain words of scripture and come up with their own meanings. We see it all the time, don't we? I sat in a denominational lecture for pastors once and listened as a senior leader uh, explained how you can see that by the time the Apostle John wrote his gospel, the church had really began to paint Judas in a very bad light. Um, And so what we read in, in the Gospel of John, for instance, doesn't reflect Judas's real historical character, uh, but the tainted views of the early church. Oh, we, we see that same kind of thing outside of the church as well, don't we? Um, take the musical Jesus Christ Superstar, which ends up turning the scriptures on its head. Jesus becomes the one who's greedy for power and fame, while Judas, his friend, tries desperately to help him see the error of his ways. All set to song. The Bible's description of, of Judas's death uh, has also been used by sceptics to undermine the Bible by suggesting that there's contradictions in the Bible. In Matthew 27, uh, we're told that Judas hung himself, while in Acts 1, we're told that Judas fell headlong and uh, burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. But where's the contradiction there? Uh, the authors are simply describing different aspects of the same event. Judas hung himself and after some time his body fell to the ground where it was damaged further. There's no contradiction there at all. It goes even further though. In the 1970s an ancient document was discovered and later translated which is known as the Gospel of Judas. Uh, It records supposed conversations between Jesus and Judas in which Jesus actually commissions Judas to betray him. And so Judas' betrayal was in obedience to Jesus' commands. But analysis shows that that text was written in the second century. And aside from this false discussion between Jesus and Judas, the Gospel of Judas also teaches many other things which contradict the Scriptures. So I don't think we'll be listening to that one. This morning, we want to see what the scriptures say. We want God's word on this matter to inform us as to why a man who was personally chosen by Christ, who fellowshiped with Christ, who felt the compassion and love of Christ, 
who was empowered to preach and to perform miracles in Christ's name. How a man like this decided to betray the Son of God. Judas's life is a devastating picture of the rejection of God. And yet, in the midst of this, we see God's compassion and love and sovereignty at work and bringing all his purposes perfectly to pass. Well, let's start with this man's name, Judas Iscariot. It's been suggested that Iscariot is a rendering of the word Sakari, which, as uh, if you were here last week, uh, we learned was a militant group of Jewish assassins, the Sakari. They were willing to bring down Rome or Roman sympathisers at any cost. But it seems far more likely that Iscariot was simply a name representing where Judas was from. The word Ish, meaning man, and and Iscariot meaning man of Kerioth. And Kerioth was a small town in southern Judea. So he's the man of Kerioth. Judas was a common name in the first century. In the New Testament alone, we find five other men named Judas. And no doubt the reason for the common usage of the name Judas was its heritage and its meaning. Uh, Judas, or Jude, is linked back to the Hebrew tribe of Judah. Genesis 29, verse 35, we're told that Jacob's wife Leah conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. So Judah, Judas, Jude means praise the Lord. It's a beautiful name. Judas, praise the Lord. You get the picture of Judas's parents, humble folks from a small town, having a desire for their son's life to be of praise to the Lord. Wouldn't we all wish that? And yet that tragically was not to be. In every list of the apostles' names in the New Testament, we see the fruit of Judas's life and choices. He's listed as Judas Iscariot, the traitor, the one who betrayed Jesus. Now, there's two incidents during Jesus' earthly ministry where we get a glimpse of Judas's character. So, if you open your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 6. Just as you're doing so, just recall that the chapter, John chapter 6, opens with recalling Jesus' miraculous feeding of the 5,000 men, not including the women and children also present. This was uh, an incredible sign that, that validated his ministry and it revealed who he was as the Son of God. The apostles got even more understanding of Jesus' identity that evening as as Jesus sent them away from the crowds on a boat heading across the water and this, this storm came up during the night. And then in the midst of this storm, Jesus comes walking to them on the water and then he, second, he steps into the boat miraculously, the boat instantaneously made it to the shore, just like that. That morning, the crowd realizing that Jesus was no longer with them, they got into their boats and they headed across to the other shore in Capernaum in search of Jesus. And when they find him, they, they desire for him to perform more miraculous signs. And this 
precipitates the wonderful discussion from Jesus about him being the bread of life. And it's a big sermon. And by our pragmatic Western standards, it was not a very effective sermon. Because instead of saying things that uh, would draw people in and, and uh, keep, keep them with him, Jesus' message removes any sense of uh, salvation, including human strength. It's all by grace alone. And he, he removes any sense of equivocation or hesitation, any wavering when it comes to discipleship. He called for 100% devotion to him. Eat my flesh. He's saying he is Lord. There is no other. Now that's not a popular message today. And it certainly wasn't a popular message back then either because we read at the end of the chapter in verse 66, it says this, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Picking up from verse 67, we read, So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so Peter's response shows the apostles' trust in Christ. But what Jesus says next shows that their trust in him was only enabled by his sovereign grace. Verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. In effect, Jesus is saying that the twelve have not remained faithful because of their greater ability or, or knowledge, but because of Jesus granting and sustaining their faith in him. He chose them. Yeah, this also means that Jesus has chosen one to be counted among the twelve who was a devil, one who was standing in the way of Christ. Now John gives us an editorial comment, verse 71, where he explains of Jesus... He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now at the time, the apostles had no idea that Judas would betray Jesus. They only knew this after the fact. However, Jesus was not taken aback. He had chosen Judas and he'd done so because he knew his character. Just go back to verse 64. Jesus said to all the disciples before many of them left, but there are some of you who do not believe. There's some of you standing among here claiming to be followers of me and yet you do not believe. Then in the rest of verse 64, John gives another editorial comment saying, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Just mark that down. We might be able to conceal our inner motives from others but we cannot do that from God now the fact that Jesus knows what is in the heart of a man shows that his statement to the apostles is a correct assessment of Judas and we'll come to the reason as to why Jesus chose Judas a little later but just know for the moment that Jesus' characterization of Judas as a devil shows that any attempt to paint Judas as well-meaning but misguided, 
uh, or even that he was genuinely good and acting on Jesus' behalf, is in direct contradiction to the revealed word of God. Judas was, like many others at the time, and similarly today, who publicly affirmed Jesus, but whose hearts remained in disbelief and disobedience. Yet unlike the others who walked away at that moment, he remained. But with the faithful exterior, hiding a faithless interior. We get another glimpse of Judas's character in John 12. So turn with me there. John 12. Right at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, On the Saturday night, Saturday evening before Palm Sunday, Jesus and his apostles were invited to share a meal at a home in Bethany, which was just outside of Jerusalem. Interestingly, uh, when Matthew and Mark record this incident, this incident, uh, it's placed at the end of the events of the Passion Week, not right at the start, as it is here in John's Gospel. But the language that Matthew and Mark use show they are simply describing an event that happened at some point during the Passion Week while Jesus was in Bethany. And it's a prime example of how the Gospel accounts never ever contradict one another and they stand in absolute harmony truly the bible is the word of god so during the meal mary the sister of martha and lazarus mary poured expensive perfume over jesus and it was a beautiful expression of devotion earlier in jesus ministry another unnamed woman performed a similar act which is recorded in Luke 7. Two different events. This time, in John 12, it is Mary. And how is her loving care for Jesus received? Well, Judas spoke up and he slammed the act as a misuse of funds. He basically accuses her of selfishness because instead of selling the perfume to raise funds for the poor, she's used the perfume as a means of garnering praise from Jesus all for herself how dare she in Matthew and Mark's account they only tell us that some unnamed apostles were indignant at Mary's act of devotion they don't spell it out that it was Judas what seems to have happened is that Judas was the one who began the complaints and then some of the others joined in with him Yet in doing so, these other apostles showed a complete lack of discernment. Why? Well, as John explains in his editorial hindsight by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Judas did not make his complaint because he cared one bit about the poor. His complaint stemmed from his own selfish desires because as John tells us, Judas was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. He's ticked off that his cuts being shortened. Now, Judas not said anything. It seems unlikely that the others would have either. Remember, there was a similar event that happened earlier in Jesus' ministry and not one word of dissent was recorded then. So here's a lesson, if ever there was one. The loudest voice is not necessarily making noise for the reasons we might at first consider. As Christians, we must be thinking people, 
Now, that's not to say, of course, that we should be cynical and sceptical about what others say. Of course not. In 1 Corinthians 13, uh, the Apostle Paul reminds us that love believes all things. We're to give our brothers and sisters the benefit of the doubt. But at the same time, the statement that love believes all things is not a call to be undiscerning. In the same chapter, indeed, in the verse before, we read that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Judas concealed his true character exceedingly well from all but Jesus. That was to his shame. But the lack of discernment on the apostles at that point was to their own shame. Well, these glimpses into the character of Judas from John 6 and John 12 show us that Judas's betrayal of Jesus did not come out of nowhere. He was a man who had shared fellowship and ministry with Jesus and the other apostles for almost three years. But his outward respect of Christ was at odds with his inward rejection of Christ. Well, let's turn now to where these these two aspects of his character begin to coincide in his conspiracy. So, flick back over to Luke and to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22 and right at the beginning of the chapter. I'm going to read verses 1 to 6. Luke 22, verses 1 to 6. Now, the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. There's a lot in that. But let me highlight two important facets for us. First, just note that at this point, Satan took possession of Judas. Now, this shows that Judas was not a regenerate believer because true believers cannot be possessed by demons. All believers this side of Christ's resurrection are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So we cannot be at the same time possessed by an unholy spirit. And while believers in God's promises before Christ were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, they had nonetheless been regenerated by the Spirit in order that they could believe in God's promises and seek to live in righteousness. And this would have included the apostles as well. They were among those who believed in God's promises before the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit was given. No demon could enter a regenerated heart. One demon, however, entered Judas's unregenerate heart, the chief of demons, Satan. Now, some might be inclined to give Judas a pass here because when he went to conspire with the priests and the scribes, he did so under the possession of Satan. Hey, it wasn't me, it was Satan. But look at Judas's life up until this point. 
He was sinning. And he was sinning because he was a sinner. He desired sin and he freely exercised his will to sin. He did what he desired to do. The fact that Satan possessed Judas to be the instrument of his destructive plan does not absolve Judas for living a life that enabled Satan to do so. In John 13 verse 2, we're told that as the Last Supper began, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Jesus. Now we can see the logical flow of thought between the different gospel accounts. Judas was an unregenerate sinner, just like any one of us before we were saved by the love of God. But he was a man who was not constrained even by the moral judgments of the age because Judas was a thief. At some point in the Passion Week, the, the devil put it into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. The devil was responsible for putting the temptation there. But Judas was responsible for his sinful desires as he contemplated the reward for his betrayal. Now only in the final effort of going to the religious leaders did Satan possess Judas, but by that time he was already guilty for allowing his sinful desires to guide him. It's also apparent after this that Satan released Judas from his possession because John 13 verse 27 tells us that when Judas received the bread from Jesus at Last Supper, Satan entered into him. John 13, 27. So clearly then, there was a time between these two moments of possession that Judas was carrying things out all by himself. No excuse for his actions can be made. The second facet to highlight is that Satan is not omnipresent. He's not in all places at all times. Now, that's not specifically clear from this passage alone, but I think it's important to make that point anyway. While Satan is the prince of this world, and as a fallen angel, he exists as a spirit, he is nevertheless a creature. Unlike God, who transcends his creation, yet is also imminent within every place of his creation, Satan exists in time and in space. So when Satan possessed Judas, that was where Satan was at that time. There's a tremendous difference then between God and Satan. It's not two equal opposing forces here. Even though Satan leads the many other fallen angels known to us as demons, and as Paul says in Ephesians 6, our battle is not with flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. Even here, we recognize that only God is omnipresent. Only God is in all places at all times. And that should give believers immense encouragement. Well, from Judas's conspiracy, we now look to the events at the Last Supper where we see his betrayal. So turn with me to John chapter 13. John 13, and the the passage opens with a description of Jesus' incredible display of servant-hearted leadership in the upper room. 
The first few verses set up Christ's love for his own, his deep love for his own, in direct comparison with the devilish deception of Judas, which then moves into Jesus taking off his outer robe and and washing the feet of the twelve. All the twelve, mind you, including Judas, the man Jesus knows is plotting against him. When Jesus gets to Peter, uh, that apostle initially protests Jesus' act of kindness and, and then when Jesus tells him that if he's not washed by Jesus, he'll have no part with him, Peter responds saying in verse 9, Lord, not my feet, but my hands, my head. Peter displays a deep desire to be with Jesus. But in his eagerness, he's actually missed the point of what Jesus is truly teaching them at that time. Listen to how Jesus explains things in verses 10 and 11. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. So what does all this mean? Well, in the first century, people walked. They walked everywhere. And when you walked, your feet got dirty. So while you may have bathed before you left home, you would still need to wash your feet when you arrived where you were going. But only your feet. Jesus is using the physical washing as a picture of the spiritual cleansing that only he can bring. There is a once-off cleansing that happens the moment faith in Christ is enabled by the grace of God. While believers are then called to progressive sanctification, that is, a growing in holiness, they do so from a place of positional sanctification. That is, by grace, God has sovereignly and mercifully set apart his people for himself. We don't progress in sanctification in order to be made right before God. We're made right declared right before God in order that we can then be called to progress in holiness in this life. The illustration by Jesus shows that 11 of the apostles were cleansed completely and would only need to have their feet washed regularly. But one of them had not had that initial cleansing at all. 11 were true believers, one was not. This then leads into a discussion about how the apostles are to follow Jesus' example. And in this, he's not establishing foot washing as another ordinance for the church alongside baptism and the Lord's Supper. He's just used foot washing as a visual aid, a demonstration of the humble service that he came to exhibit and that he calls his believers to follow. Verse 17 is a great encouragement to them when he says, if you know these things... Blessed are you if you do them. But then listen to what he says next. Verse 18. I am not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now the scripture Jesus speaks of is Psalm 41 and verse 9. And in that psalm, King David to some of praise, King David begins by praising the Lord for his care for the weak. And David 
praises the Lord for God's divine mercy to forgive David's sins. And then David praises the Lord, knowing that God will bring triumph over his enemies. And it's in this last section dealing with the Lord's triumph over David's enemies. We read in verses 9 to 10 of Psalm 41, David says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. King David experienced the hurt of seeing his closest friends betray him. But we come to see that this terrible moment in David's life foreshadows a far worse betrayal. Unlike David, who was a sinner himself, David's greatest son, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, was sinless. And so Judas's actions constitute the most abhorrent betrayal in the history of the world. Now, Jesus' words cause a stir. Verse 21, John 13, verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So in his humanity, Jesus felt the weight and the pain of knowing that one of those who would walk so closely with him would turn on him. You see Jesus' heart here for Judas. It pains him that one so close to him is going to do this. Well, this feeling in turn becomes a burden for the apostles. Verses 22 to 24, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? They want to know. Who is it? They were a close-knit group. They had spent almost three years together. They were all devoted to Jesus. They all loved Jesus. And they wanted details. They wanted it revealed who among them was going to reject all that they had been involved in. Who was going to reject their Lord. So Jesus answered them plainly in verses 26 to 27. Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. Jesus said to him, What you are doing, sorry, what you are going to do, do quickly. Here's the deception of, Jesus, uh, of Judas. He had concealed his motives and his actions so well that not one of the disciples ever, ever questioned his loyalty to Jesus. Now you'd think that if they'd even gotten the slightest inkling that there was something up with Judas in the past few years, that, that eyes would have turned his way straight away when Jesus was saying that, that one among you is going to betray me. But no. And not even when Jesus hands the bread to Judas directly. Not even then do they make that connection. Verses 28 to 29. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus 
was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. They had no idea the hypocrisy that Judas was living with. John adds an apt description in verse 30 to wrap up this section. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Now no doubt this is a time reference telling us that it was indeed night when Judas left. But with John's constant emphasis throughout his gospel on light and darkness as pictures of morality, it seems that John is also emphasising what was truly going on within Judas Iscariot. In him it was indeed night. Now before we leave the Last Supper, I want us to tackle the question of why. Why, if Jesus knew Judas's character, why then did Jesus choose Judas to be an apostle? Firstly, turn with me to John 17. In verse 6, John 17, verse 6, Jesus prays to the Father, saying, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And you know what? Here we see once more the glorious doctrine of election. Jesus revealed himself fully to those whom the Father had given him. And so those who came to believe in Jesus were those who had been given to him by the Father. Salvation truly is by grace alone. Now, this prayer for his people continues in the following verses. But then notice verse 12. Jesus declares, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Judas's betrayal was not a failure on Jesus' part to protect Judas from falling into sin. No, Judas's betrayal was fulfilment of the scriptures. His betrayal was a fulfilment of prophecy, which meant it was a fulfilment of God's words and God's plans. Interestingly, after the ascension of Christ, when the remaining apostles organise a replacement for Judas, uh, we are told in Acts 1 that they do so because it is to fulfil further scripture. Psalms 41, 55, 69, 109 all contain fulfilment of prophecy in these events. Nothing, nothing that happened in all these matters was outside the will of God. So while Judas was fully responsible for his actions, nevertheless, it was part of God's sovereign plan that Judas would betray Jesus in order that Jesus might be handed over to the authorities to die on the cross for the sins of his people. Now, did that mean Judas did not have a choice in the matter? No, of course he had a choice and he was responsible for his choices. He did what he desired. Did that mean that God sinned by ordaining Judas to to sin in his betrayal of Jesus? Absolutely not. Jesus chose Judas to be an apostle because he knew Judas and he knew that he would betray him in the end because it was in Judas' will to do so just as it was part of the sovereign will of God to bring this to pass. We struggle with holding these 
two truths together, but the Bible does so in many places. What did Joseph say to his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What did Peter say to the Jews on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, 23? This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Judas had full access to Jesus throughout the ministry. Even at the Last Supper, his feet were washed by Jesus. And the offering of the bread was a a final chance to cease his actions and receive the love of Christ. But his sinful desires prevented him from responding to Christ. He chose sin, which as we know is the choice that we all make unless the saving grace of God gives us new birth, a new heart, a new mind to repent and trust in Christ the Saviour and Lord. Turn back with me to Luke 23 and I want to show you this even more clearly. Luke 23 and verse 31. Listen to what Jesus says after Judas leaves the upper room. Luke 20. Sorry, Luke 22. Luke 22. In verses 31 and 32, we read this. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus' comments are directed to Simon Peter, but Jesus assures the 11 that he's prayed for them. The you in the Greek text is plural. Not just you, Simon, but all of you. The 11 sitting before me. Now, Simon and the others failed miserably within only a few hours of these comments, all abandoning Jesus at the first sign of trouble. But they did not abandon Jesus completely. They stumbled, but their faith was not lost. And the only reason for that is because of Jesus. It's not because of their own strength to persevere. It was because Jesus sustained them. And of course, they were sustained because the triune God had chosen them before the foundation of the world and would lead them fully to glorification. Now, we don't have time to look at the actions of Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane when he brought the soldiers to arrest Jesus, but that is clearly a different action than the rest of the apostles. They abandoned Christ through fear. Judas, on the other hand, abandoned Christ through his own greed. You can see that even more directly in the responses of Judas and Peter after the arrest of Jesus. Peter, he was distraught, but he showed true remorse for his actions. He loved Christ and he was absolutely devastated that he had failed his Lord. Judas, however, showed no true repentance. Matthew 27 is the only place in the Gospels that inform us of Judas's actions. So please turn with me there. Matthew 27, 
it's hot today, so all this flicking back and forward is cooling you down, I hope. Matthew 27, verses 3 to 5, tell us this. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. Judas certainly experienced feelings of sadness and regret, but this was short of repentance. Because there's no calling out to God for his mercy. There's no willingness to plead to God for his forgiveness. 2 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul's words provide a clear comparison between godly repentance and worldly remorse. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, Paul says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Judas was distressed that the choices he freely made had resulted in the arrest of an innocent man, indeed the only innocent man to walk this earth after the fall. But his distress did not lead him to turn to God. It led him to run from God. It led him to deal with things by himself. But the moment he closed his eyes in death and opened his eyes in the world to come, he would have realised straight away that you cannot run from God. What makes all the difference between Judas and the 11 other apostles? What makes the difference? It is the sovereign grace of God. That's the only thing that makes the difference. Without God's grace, we are left to our sinful desires. Freely choosing sin, we choose what we desire, and our desire is sin. And freely choosing to live against God. God's grace makes all the difference. Jesus' intercession for his apostles made all the difference for them. While they abandoned Christ through fear, after the resurrection and ascension, they stood firm and they became the foundation of the church through their own witness of the gospel and through their own blood in service to the King of Kings. Judas's life is a dramatic testimony to the reality of sin and the necessity of God's grace for salvation. Judas lived and ministered with Jesus for several years, witnessing the Son of God, receiving the care and the compassion of God incarnate, just like the other 11. And yet Judas could not act beyond his own sinful desires to love the Lord. The others were no stronger or wiser in themselves, Their deep love for the Lord simply flowed out of the saving love that he had showered upon them first. Only because of God's grace were the eleven enabled to stand for Christ as his authoritative witnesses. Now it's not clear exactly why Judas chose to betray Jesus. Perhaps it was failure to to bring about uh, the demise of Rome Perhaps it was constantly standing in the holy presence of Christ like the the other apostles in the boat when Jesus appeared to them and Peter declared, get away from me for I am a sinner. Perhaps it was the thought that Christ knew exactly what was going on in his heart. And at the heart of it all was his own sin. 
And sin always acts in rebellion to God. But sin will be judged. If you've never called upon the mercy of God to open your eyes to see Christ Jesus for who he is as the saviour of this world, the one and only saviour of this world, then I implore you to not let Judas's life and his end escape your attention. The scriptures tell us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, this brings us to the end, really, of our series of the Apostles of Christ. Uh, In the past eight weeks, we've looked at their appointment, their assignment, and now we've finished looking at the attributes of each of the twelve. Now, much, much more could have been said, and we'll no doubt have opportunity to continue to learn more about apostleship as it comes up working our way through Mark's Gospel. But hopefully this has given us a given us all a far better appreciation of the 12 ordinary men chosen by Christ to be his authoritative delegates. And aside from the 12, Judah's replacement, which was Matthias, and the Apostle Paul, only these men were set apart for this task. None other in the first century and certainly none others in the time since. But none others were needed. They were the foundation of the church. And their apostolic authority is vested in the scriptures that they oversaw by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The New Testament, coupled with the Old Testament, forms the authoritative witness to the Saviour of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God has spoken, and he has spoken clearly, and he has spoken sufficiently, and he has spoken authoritatively. So may we listen to his word may we rejoice in his word and may we submit to the lord that his word points us towards let's pray dear father we thank you for all the things that we have been studying in your word under this heading of the apostles of christ Father, we thank you for what we have learned about the nature of apostleship, but most of all, we thank you that in every way it has pointed us towards your grace. These men had nothing going for them by a worldly standard. Throughout the Gospels, we see their constant failures and misunderstandings, and yet through your grace, through your love towards them and through the resurrection of your son, they became the authoritative witnesses to proclaim the good news of the gospel. We are so thankful for that because we stand here today, 2,000 years later, reading that word, a testament that, that it is your word, that it has survived, that it has been maintained We stand here by your grace, that grace first exhibited to them. Please help us to love the word that you have given to us through them. Please help us to love the Saviour, our Lord Jesus, who their word points us towards. Father, help us as we look particularly at Judas Iscariot today. Help us to recognise the reality of sin 
the fact that our sinful desires we cannot break through them we are held in bondage to them father for those who have never called upon your mercy we pray that your spirit would be working in their hearts to convict them to open their eyes that they might come to trust in the lord jesus and for each of us who have been touched by your grace already may you continue to help us to grow to progress in our sanctification to progress in our holiness by the power of the spirit at work in our hearts and our lives rejoicing in the fact that one day we will stand glorified with christ before you in the new heavens and the new earth what an incredible vision what an incredible hope what an incredible joy may you stir our hearts through your word by your spirit and our love for christ in his name and for his glory we pray amen